Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we investigate the real history of what's going on in politics right now and what that means for our future. In this, our second episode on the coronation of King Charles III, we're going to be talking about what the coronation means for the Union and the history of the relationship between the British monarchy and the Union. Edinburgh, Queen Elizabeth's northern capital, prepares to greet Her Majesty. Along Princes Street moves a magnificent procession, accompanying the Queen to a service of national thanksgiving at St Giles Cathedral. Born in public for the first time since 1822 are Scotland's proud emblems of majesty. The crown, the scepter and the sword. Her Majesty comes to the altar. The very Reverend Charles Waugh blesses the Queen. The blessing is that used at her coronation. The honours of Scotland, which have survived through the centuries are now to be offered to Her Majesty as a demonstration of the loyalty of her Scottish subjects. The ancient crown of Scotland is presented to the Queen. Her Majesty the Queen has further endeared herself to all her Scottish subjects. That was a clip, a lovely clip from British Pathé of the Queen in Edinburgh shortly after her coronation in 1953. Edinburgh there, I think, interestingly referred to as her northern capital. Uh, I found it strangely moving, actually, Helen, watching that clip, knowing that 70 years later she would die in Scotland and be laid at rest, as it's called, in the same cathedral before her body was transferred down to London. At the very time that she's laying at rest there and uh, thousands of Scottish mourners are going to see her, the first queue, interestingly enough, being in Scotland rather than in London. And while she's in Scotland still, her son, the now king, is taking his oath. And the core part of that oath is a guarantee, really, that he will protect the established Scottish Church in Scotland. Now, this is fascinating 
because he has to take this oath, this pledge to Scotland, before his coronation, which is happening on Saturday, in which he will be made defender of the faith, of the Anglican faith, of the Church of England. And this is a crucial tension in the union between England and Scotland, in which we have two established churches, but one king who's defender of one faith while having this political oath to Scotland. And that says a lot about the fudge, the political fudge that is necessary for this union to hang together. What it shows, in a way, is that Scotland is more important yeah. over this question, this question. religious question, because the sequence of events is basically saying the oath about the Church of England, that can wait till the monarch's crowned. And yeah. sometimes that can be longer beyond the accession than... Yeah, it could be months. It could be yeah, over different years. Yeah. Yeah. And yet the oath about the Church of Scotland, that can't wait. Okay. That has to be instant. Pretty much the moment there is a new monarch that this pledge has to be made. Shall I, shall I just yeah. read it out? I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of my other realms and territories, King, Defender of the Faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion as established by the laws made in Scotland in prosecution of the claim of right and particularly by an act entitled An Act for Securing the Protestant Religion and Presbyterian Church Government. That is interesting just to read. It is, uh, and I think what it shows is that although we think of 1707 as the year in which the Anglo-Scottish Union happened, obviously there was a monarchical union before that, the end of there being two separate kingdoms of England and Scotland and a parliamentary union between them. What it really wasn't was any kind of ecclesiastical mm. union. Indeed, the condition of this union taking place was that both churches were going to continue on their separate ways. Yeah. And in time, I would suggest, particularly from the 19th century, that actually they were going to move further apart from mm. each other when there's a kind of return of more Catholic influence into the Anglican Church that doesn't happen with the Church of Scotland. And to understand why this is so significant, we need to go back even further into the, the 17th century and see why these disputes about who has authority over religious worship were so destructive to both relations between England and Scotland and, and, and Ireland as well and were central to the, the Civil War in the middle part yeah. of the, the 17th century and looked at in Scotland what's causing that civil war is the desire of the supposedly shared king, interestingly of Scottish origin, Charles yeah. I, to impose uniform practices of worship across England and Scotland, to impose the Book of Common Prayer onto Scotland. There could be a political union and I don't think either side could have wanted this going down that terrible road again. You see it now in the ceremony itself that he is a he's an Anglican king, but he, as you say, he has to make this pledge. It strikes me as like a political deal that is made between England and Scotland. Like we can become a single nation at the same time, we're a multinational nation and we're a multi-faith 
nation. And that was the deal that allowed the two to hang together. And taking it forward almost 100 years to Ireland being brought into the Union, there was a precedent set in with Scotland, but it wasn't carried through with Ireland in the same way. And that there was a British nation that was created on the back of this political compromise between England and Scotland where you could have two faiths. But then when it came to Catholic emancipation for the Irish and the attempt to build a British nation that stretched over the British Isles, including Ireland, actually the kings then felt that was too far, that they couldn't, as defenders of the Anglican faith, that they couldn't live with Catholic emancipation. And I think you can make an argument that is one of the reasons why the union with Ireland doesn't work out in the same way that it has worked out with Scotland. Yeah, I think what you can see with Scotland is that after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, all sides understand that any attempt at uniformity is going to be politically destructive Mm. again. And so that nobody in 1707 is really pressing for trying to sort out this disagreement it's the terms of union are this and if you then say once the attempt to return the Stuarts to not just the throne of Scotland but the throne of England the Jacobite rebellions are over if you say what is the single question that is most problematic to the union between England and Scotland in the sense of it reoccurs in time I would say it's the Church of Scotland's position and that that has to be secure Mm. the independence of the church of scotland it has to be secure for the union to be stable to the point where i would say the fact that the westminster parliament can't legislate on that matter right is that yeah is actually uh the first clear compromise i would suggest with the principle of parliamentary well you could argue whether it's depending when you think that it moves from like a tacit understanding to a, a legal understanding because the devolution for Northern Ireland when Northern Ireland is first created as a state obviously yeah. compromises parliamentary sovereignty too but the fact that the Church of Scotland's petition is sacrosanct and that Westminster Parliament couldn't undo that that clearly yeah. isn't the usual understanding just of say, the application of parliamentary sovereignty yeah so when, when Northern Ireland was created it had its own House of Commons its own Prime Minister it was a kind of semi-dominion status within the UK But you see the tension or the multinational element of the UK, why we are just a strange and different country to most of the European countries. There were European countries that were these amalgams before the First World War, Austria-Hungary and places like that. But there aren't really any more where there are these multinational states with parliament that's sovereign, but in not in certain areas and where certain parts of the country have a House of Commons, and then they don't have a House of Commons. And you're constantly having to grapple with the reality of the union, which requires political compromise. And it's never static. It's all You're always having to do these political compromises to maintain the sense of unity. There's kind of, there is a diversity within the union. The reason why the Irish issue really presses as hard as it does and the way in which these delicate compromises, and they're really, I think, in some sense, quite brilliant, compromises that are reached in 
relations between England and Scotland over this matter within the construct of a parliamentary union is that the Irish problem, because of the fact that the the British monarch must make these oaths yeah. about the Protestant faith, whether that they be the one in relation to the Church of Scotland or whether they be the one in the coronation ceremony, is that makes it much harder and any time in which the monarch has some actual political influence, which was true in the 18th century, early part of the mm. 19th century, for the monarch to accept that something that we came to call Catholic emancipation, Catholic votes, Catholic the, the Catholics could hold uh, office is okay. So actually when William Pitt the Younger is pressing very hard for Catholic emancipation for very obvious reasons and said, look, we can't bring Ireland into the Union when the parliamentary union happens between Britain and Ireland in 1800. And then think in any way that this is going to work if we basically say that you don't have any political rights yeah. if you're a Catholic. George III says, my coronation oath says that I'm supposed to preserve the Protestant faith. And he will not budge on that. And that leads to the end of that premiership of yeah. Pitt the Younger because Catholic emancipation obviously does happen in 1829. Yeah. And the king this time, who I think is George IV, is also very unhappy about it. But a combination of the Duke of Wellington and Peel prevail, essentially insisting there'll be civil war in Ireland if, Catholic, was eventually. Yeah, if the Catholic emancipation doesn't happen. And you can see, actually, I think early in the decades, I think I'm right in saying that at George IV's coronation, which was in 1821 that Catholic peers were, including Irish peers, were invited to that. So again, we can see the way in which the monarchy acts as a... Some of these fault lines around the uni, union really can manifest themselves at these ceremonies around the monarchy. The other reason why these questions, like whether Catholic peers can turn up at coronations prior to Catholic emancipation in eighteen 29 so come to the fore during the coronations is because coronation is a religious ceremony yeah. at heart yeah it's a moment of anointment of the monarch by the archbishop of canterbury it's religious to the core in that sense what goes on yeah. in westminster abbey so if you have a, a really complicated union when in regard to like religious questions like this one most certainly is, you are going to see mm. all that in this religious service because you can have various people from other faiths and denominations represented at the service. They might make a contribution to the service, but the core of the yeah. service is going to be Anglican, and that means that it's the Church of England. And just going back to what we were talking about in the first episode, that actually means that's got more in common with the church in some other countries that, have, that are in the monarchical union outside the United Kingdom than it does, say, in Scotland. Yeah. yeah, what's great is we're actually going to focus in the second half of this episode on how Charles's coronation and Queen Elizabeth's coronation get at these fault lines and we can see the fault lines and we can see how the union itself has changed from the period that we've been talking about 
through Queen Elizabeth's period to now, and now with obviously the Union in quite some danger, really, 50% of Scotland there or thereabouts in favour of independence. So that's what we're going to come back to in the second half of this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Episode. Presiding officer, first minister, party leaders and members of the Scottish Parliament. I know that the Scottish Parliament share with me a profound sense of grief at the death of my beloved mother. My mother felt as I do the greatest admiration for the Scottish people. The knowledge of that deep and abiding bond must be to us a solace as we mourn the end of a life of incomparable service. While still very young, the Queen pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the principles of constitutional government. As we now mark with gratitude a promise most faithfully fulfilled, I am determined with God's help and with yours to follow that inspiring example. Welcome back. And that was King Charles speaking to the Scottish Parliament last year about his mother's great admiration for the Scottish people and her promise, as he put it, to serve her country and her people. I think what's interesting there is it's not peoples, which is what the Queen actually made her oath to serve, peoples of her empire. Now Charles is talking about a country and a people, and that gets us at this subject that we want to talk about now which is strength of the union and what the queen managed to do are we a single people or are we a multiple peoples and a single people in the same time helen you've got thoughts on the queen's success in binding us together in this way yeah i think the queen elizabeth ii made a considerable contribution to the union i don't mean by saying that there weren't issues with the union during her reign quite Obviously, that there were not just in Northern Ireland and Scotland, but in Wales too, if you think of what happened in the 60s and what happened around Charles, as he then was the Prince of Wales investiture um, in in Wales. But I think that the danger for the British monarchy has always been that in the Union terms is that it looks very English. And we've already touched on one aspect of that, the fact that the monarch is the head of the Church of England. I think if you go way back, like you go back into the 18th century and the House of uh, Hanover, this was a dynasty that was pretty much completely removed from Scotland. None of the monarchs 
on the throne went to Scotland after 1707, so after the Parliamentary Union, until George IV went in 1822. That's a long time. Victoria, I think, she was the monarch who acquired the Balmoral estate. Victoria, I think, did show some significant interest in Scotland, but I'm not sure that can be said so much really for any of Edward VII, George V, George VI, though he obviously did marry a Scottish woman in the former Queen Mother, but he didn't conspicuously spend time in Scotland in the way in which Queen Elizabeth II She was very clear that for a long time that Balmoral was a place where she went every year during the summer months. And I think one of the ways in which she contributed to the Union was the fact that she was seen as worshipping in various Anglican churches, particularly the church at Sandringham, and then that church in the village next to Balmoral, where she is not head of the church in the way in which she is yeah. head of the church when she was the church in, in Sandringham. And the fact that she was so at ease, it seemed, in moving between who she religiously was in England and Scotland and spent as much time as she did, I think that was making the monarchy more British. Yeah. And then I think on the Irish, on the Northern Irish side, the fact that she met and shook hands with Martin McGuinness and the way in which she did, that was a pretty powerful moment in the politics of Northern Ireland and the politics of the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland. Then I think I'd push back a bit and say the, sim- the symbolism only takes you so far. She can shake hands with Martin McGuinness and she can go to Ireland and people in Ireland will still talk about that as the high point of Anglo-Irish relations for a long time, that it's that it's all been downhill since then. And yet, ultimately, she is not really seen as the queen for nationalists in Northern Ireland, for Catholics in Northern Ireland, essentially. And I think even in Scotland, the queen wasn't as popular or the, the monarchy isn't as popular in Scotland as it is in England. And she's still colloquially known almost everywhere as the Queen of England or was known as the Queen of England. I'm not sure if the, if Charles is yet known as the King of England in the same way, but I don't think many people referred to her or referred to Charles as the King of the United Kingdom. It doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way, King sure, of Britain. But I'm not sure that United Kingdom usually rolls off people's tongue in the same, <laughs> no. in the same way. We tend to fall back on saying Britain. Now, I see exactly what you're saying. All I would say is that I think because there is such a strong historical, if you like, bias to the British monarchy in English. Even just think about simple things like the fact that she was crowned Elizabeth II, yet there'd been no prior Elizabeth as Queen of Scotland. Indeed, there was various nationalist legal case taken. There was a backlash, wasn't there? There was some post boxes blown up, I think. There was also a quite significant legal case with some significant constitutional implications, yeah. not not because the case was upheld, but because in the commentary that... Luckily, Charles doesn't have. Yeah, that so went... Charles III uh, is yeah. Charles III in everywhere. Uh, uh, yeah, and then if you go back to the coronation oath, that was the, the English coronation oath that just moved over to being the one for Britain. And the service itself. The service itself has got its origins in Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. It's uh, in Westminster Abbey. It's in Westminster Abbey. And I think that it's pretty hard work when you start thinking about it to project the monarchy as British. But I think that 
Queen Elizabeth II was very committed to trying to do that. Yeah, because we think we we think about it, don't we? Thousand years of history, this line that takes us all the way back to the 11th century, and yet obviously it doesn't for Britain. Britain is a much newer creation, and the UK is an even newer creation than that. I would say she was successful personally, and she was obviously popular, and the monarchy remains popular in Scotland, if if not as popular as it is in England. And even I think there are differences between North and South in, in England, and it may be more popular in the South, but only to a certain extent. And that's, this is not her fault. She managed to build the Union up and is one of the remaining symbols of the Union. But ultimately, there was a referendum on Scottish independence that came nail-bitingly close during her reign. And she left us with a union that was very fragile. And perhaps I think there's a fairly strong argument to say that it's the most fragile country in Europe, or we are the most fragile of the major powers, at least. There isn't a country that stands as close to breaking up as we are. Here we have to bear in mind that we are a country that effectively recognises a constitutional right to secession, which is highly... And it's guaranteed in Northern Ireland's case. Yeah. Yeah, and in that sense, our union relies on the consent of all the parts of it. Perhaps it's not clear it relies on English consent, but it relies on the consent of the other parts of the union to it. Under the general political conditions, particularly from the 1970s onwards, where North Sea oil seemed to offer Scotland an economic path out of the union, regardless of what the monarchy was doing, the monarch was doing, then we would have expected the union to be under some political pressure. I just think that she's a bit of a... The monarchy is a bit of a countervailing force, not least because mm. if you say what are the institutions of, that are clearly British, not many left. There's the monarchy and there's the armed forces. If you look at the one clear political creation of the in the middle of the 20th century, the National Health Service, yeah, then the devolution on health ensures that it's not actually a British institution. It's a multinational kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of bound up with an idea, I think, of post-war British national identity, but that once, but that falls apart quite quickly when you start looking at the actual way in which the health service is organised. I, I dealt on a with, post-national basis. Yeah, no, I, I felt that clearly. Actually, I was in Scotland during a bit of the pandemic and had to get a, a, a vaccine up there, and I just could not get it registered in England. So for a long time, I couldn't access my the vaccine passport. Remember those things because I'd had it in Scotland and it was just two different systems, two different computers that wouldn't talk to each other. It was a complete nightmare and it brought home to me the fact that we had created two health services, more than two health services. We'd created a multinational health service, but we just don't refer to it in the same, of of, of course, with education and, and almost everything else. Looking at Charles, he now reflects the fact that the union has changed dramatically from when the Queen had her coronation in 53 to Charles now having his in 2023, the change that's happened there, his actions since her death have reflected a very multinational, even more multinational union that is that, that we've talked about. It's more than just political fudges to allow Scotland 
to, to have two established churches is much more than that now. If you look at where he went after after being after becoming king, he went on a tour of the UK. He went to Scotland. He went to Wales. He went to Northern Ireland and England. We heard him speaking in uh, in Edinburgh, but he also went to Wales when the accession proclamation was read out. It then cascaded, as it's called, throughout the realm with readings in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and for the first time in Wales. And he talked in Welsh as reflecting his time as Prince of Wales. And he was very much being presented formally, I think, as the head of a multinational state. And that is interesting. And obviously it's an attempt to hold the thing together and to reflect what currently exists. But I do wonder whether, given the history that we've gone through, and you can see how the single realm of this great global Britain that had Australia, Canada, New Zealand, that that started to pull away, and then she became Queen of Australia, Queen of Canada separately. You can see, a 100 years down the line, how you could have something happen within these isles. The thing that hasn't changed, and would have been quite revealing if it had, is the role of the Church of England both in the ceremony, in the, in the religious service yeah. at Westminster Abbey and the promise that Charles will make in Westminster Abbey in relation to the Church of England because at some point when he was Prince of Wales, some time ago, as I recall, maybe even the 90s, certainly at least several decades ago, seemed to express some unease about yeah. that and talked about being defended with the faiths. Yeah. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. Actually, that the changes that look like they've been made to the coronation in terms of what he will say are entirely in relation to the Commonwealth, the realms yeah. question, and not in relation to this. What that shows is just how deeply embedded the position of the Church of England is with the monarchy. But do you think it reflects England being hidden? in a way, underneath this structure called the United Kingdom. We still have all of that old ceremonial Englishness hiding there, and we can bring the Stone of Destiny down from Scotland, and we can have as much kind of representation of the different bits of the Union, the different faiths, and they will all be included, and I, there will be bits for Wales. I think I was reading about a, a Welsh dimension where homage is paid to the new monarch led by the Prince of Wales which will be William and he will kneel at his feet and all of that kind of stuff but ultimately it's still there in the middle of it all lies England Yeah, if you look at the House of Windsor that George V created and you look at the way in which the House of Windsor has basically tried to legitimate the monarch yeah. in this country and now generally in this country, the United Kingdom ever since a lot of it has been bound up with the world wars. Mm. And a lot of it's been bound up with the services of remembrance, which you know, began under George V. And then you know, there's been this like ritual effectively established where the bride at a royal wedding, if married in Westminster Abbey, would place the bouquet of flowers onto the tomb of the unknown soldier. Or if not, it would be sent there afterwards. And then you think of the close identification with the armed forces, various members of the royal family obviously served in the uh, armed forces. That's 
very British yeah. story if we're talking about the Union. It's actually also an imperial story if yeah. you look at the contributions of who actually did the fighting in these world wars. If we look at it in those terms around the world wars, it's very much about British identity. But I think that what's really interesting about the coronation, that falls away a bit and yeah. the English aspects of it really come to the fore. And it goes to the fact that we can't really understand our country's constitution. We can't really understand the union without understanding political legacy of those religious conflicts of the 16th yeah. and the 17th century and what the Church of England is in its origins obviously lie with the monarchy in the 1530s. The fact that the Reformation took a different path in Scotland than it did in England. It was, after all, trying to deal with the legal implications of the Reformation in England that led to Wales being incorporated legally into England rather than simply being annexed, which is where what it was before. And then we know when Ireland comes in, this raises an even harder question because of the Catholic question. And this is quite difficult, I think, for many of us to get our heads around because we think we're living in a secular yeah. Britain, but you get to these moments and we're being confronted with our religious history and how important our religious history is to, in some sense, the whole. Do you think it's a problem for the Union now? If this is the sort of the great challenge of the British state today, which is to hang together, to remain together, and you've got two threats, essentially, one in Northern Ireland, which has the legal right to secede and join another state, and Scotland, which essentially has a sort of moral right that doesn't we don't quite know what's going to happen at what point does it get the right to have another referendum if ever but is it a problem that at these grand moments as you said, these only come along once every well, this is the first one in our lifetime that suddenly you're presented with both the religiousness of it and the englishness of it or is that just actually thinking about it that's just the reality of our history it is england the giant elephant in this union that is merged with the smaller countries and that's just a fact I'm not sure what the political consequences are going to be of the religious questions being so to the fore in the way in which they haven't been in most people's lifetime obviously the funerals are religious services conducted by the Church of England Archbishop of Canterbury but because they don't involve oaths in relation to the, the Church of England I think it's it's a bit different. I think what's interesting politically though we can see is the paradox because when we think about it in terms of parliamentary questions, England's in a weak position in relation to the Union being the only part of the Union that doesn't have its own parliament and doesn't yeah. since a couple of years ago even have English votes for English laws at right. Westminster yeah. no political expression and, any longer and yet when it comes to the monarchy then the Englishness of the monarchy is visible and there is a hierarchy and here it looks like England's at the top of the hierarchy and in that sense it's not surprising that support for the monarchy in Scotland and indeed other parts of the, the Union is lower than it is in England. Just one last thought on this, it raises some really interesting questions about what would happen if Scotland were to be independent but wanted to continue with the monarchical union, which was essentially the position that the SNP adopted yep. during yep. the referendum. Because one of the very first things that the Scottish Parliament did, I think unanimously, when it was set up in 1999, was to vote a proclamation, obviously had no effect, saying that the act of settlement, saying the 
couldn't be a Catholic monarch should be repealed. Yeah. And, and Simon, when he was leader, he made quite a few comments in that direction too. Yet you clearly couldn't have a continuing monarchical union between England and an independent Scotland if the Act of Settlement applied in England that didn't apply in Scotland. Yeah. It, and interestingly, if you go back to the origins of the Parliamentary Union, they're bound up with that yeah. very question. Salmond and Sturgeon as well, they tried to claim the Queen. I think they, they would refer to her as Queen of Scots. The SNP would make the suggestion that she was okay with that and she was fine to be referred to in, in that way. I'm not sure that's right or not, but I'm not sure with Salmon and Sturgeon whether, like with the currency question, that's a, that's a different one that we can come back to another time, was grasped the full implications of what Scottish independence would mean. It wouldn't necessarily be a monarchical union. It'd be more like what is existing in Australia or Canada, where he can remain head of state, but it's different. Yeah, but I think that's where the question of the history would matter, because I think that there would be pressure over not having a Catholic monarch from coming, coming from an independent Scotland, and Scottish people might think they've got more of a say of that than Australians. Though that announcement, as I said, I think we said earlier about the change on the issue of marrying a Catholic was actually announced at the Commonwealth Summit in Australia. You can see how the royal family both reflect the challenge of the union, of holding the union together, by the very fact that it's becoming less definitively British or that the idea of Britishness is changing to a definite multinational concept of Britishness and that's the and Charles is reflecting that and he will continue to reflect that and the fact that they are one of the last institutions that are holding it together or symbolically holding it together and that is the challenge for the British government I think it's both to reflect the reality of the situation that is the life of the UK now it is a multinational state with Wales now being referred to as a nation just as England and Scotland Whereas before, I don't think it would have been referred to in quite as clearly in that way. And yet the very fact that it is not a unified single state like most other countries in Europe is one of its fundamental fragilities. The monarchy is adapting to devolution. And, yeah, yeah. and the monarchy's got no choice but to do okay. that. It has to reflect that underlying political reality. And yet at the same time, and I think this is what the Queen, just by virtue of her character as much as anything, was quite skilled at, somehow try to represent something that's more than that yeah. at the same time. So the monarchy can't in any way shape the parliamentary questions, yeah. but it can perhaps provide some symbols that are resonant enough for not far from everybody, but enough people that there's still some kind of language about Britishness that can be used to legitimate a complicated political settlement between the different components of the union. And it'll be fascinating to watch that on Saturday play out with all of those symbols and all of that ancient ritual. I think that's where we should leave it for this episode. It's been great talking. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this, the second episode of These Times. We've enjoyed our conversation and we hope that you have too. Please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review there. And if you've enjoyed the episode, share it with your family and friends. If you have any questions, we'd really like to hear them, to read them and 
Hopefully we can answer them in one of our future episodes. You could email us the questions at these times at unheard.com or tweet us at these times pod that's capital T, capital P, and we will try to answer them for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.